Uh, Let me pray once again as we turn our attention to the Word of God for our final session this evening. Our God, our Father, we are delighted that we can gather ourselves together and be in your presence. Lord, our hearts have been stirred mightily, having heard from our dear brother, having had Christ in all the fullness of his glory, particularly his humanity in which he suffered, raised up so that we can gaze at him with the eyes of faith. And, oh God, we pray now that you would help us to stay alert and watchful even over our own souls as the evening draws closer to an end and help us to be able to think your thoughts after you that we can behold wonderful things from the word of God and by your spirit, Lord, apply them into our own souls that we can trust you as our God, as our heavenly father, even in the midst of suffering. So father, what we know not teach us what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. We pray in Jesus' name that all God's people say together, amen. Amen. Well, my aim in this session is to lay a biblical foundation for us for God's sovereignty over suffering. And I framed it that way because that's what I really want us to think about. I want us to think about not just God's sovereignty and suffering, But I want us to see what the Bible has to say. And I believe in the end of our time, we will see that the the Bible clearly says that God is sovereign over suffering. And my hope is that as we see this from God's word, that our hearts will be moved to rest in the arms of our loving father who only brings into the lives of his children that which will bring him glory and that which will be for our good. My aim here is not necessarily... Um, to just raise our thoughts theologically, although I certainly want to do that. But, but I, I want to raise our thoughts theologically so that experientially we can trust in a good and sovereign God in the midst of the pain and the heartaches and the hardship that we will inevitably go through. I would imagine that some of you were attracted to this conference because you in your own life have experienced or maybe even are experiencing right now suffering. It may not necessarily be persecution for your faith, although you may be suffering as a result of persecution for your faith. But suffering comes in all types and shades, even above and beyond persecution. Just living in life, we experience the vicissitudes of life, and all of us, to one degree or another, feel the weight of living in a fallen world. You know that things are not the way that they ought to be. You feel it every day of your life to one degree or another. We, we recognize that, that we have not yet made it to the new heavens and the new earth, that the consummation of all things that God has promised to bring about has not yet come. We all, each and every one of us, can recognize that we are still living with pain as a part of our experience. There is still pain and tears. There is still sickness and brokenness. There's still mourning and death, and we all have that sneaky suspicion that something is wrong. And the issue is that at those moments when the pain and the tears are there, when the sickness and the brokenness is there, when the mourning happens, Sister Mary just shared with me that there was a funeral right here in this room today. When you experience that kind of loss, the loss of a, of a loved one who you were praying that God would take that person on to glory or the sudden unexpected loss of a child. We feel the weight of that kind of suffering and, and it causes us, if the truth be told, to ask that question, why is it? What, what, what is happening to me? Why am I going through that? And, and what I want to do, what I want to press it to us is that as we ask that question, that, that we got to make sure that our feet are firmly planted in the soil of God's sovereignty so that we won't think it's strange when, in fact, suffering comes into our lives. Now, as a pastor, I'm close to the suffering of many people. 
I have both the profound privilege and pain of walking with the saints of our church and other saints through difficult times. Not too long ago, a dear couple in our church, this is maybe about four years ago, suffered in ways that are almost unimaginable. They're a young couple, and uh, the wife's brother was, was, was murdered on the freeway. It was all in the news. He was 29 years old and gunned down in broad daylight. The shock of the news was, was, was so strong that the, the mother of the son heart was broken and she went into the hospital and she came out of the hospital a week later only to go back into the hospital and she never left the hospital again. She died three weeks later. So within a framework of three weeks, that particular family lost two loved ones. A week later, the husband of the wife got a call from his father that his father had murdered his mother and left her body in the house. And this son had to climb through the window only to find his mother murdered by his father. This all happened within a framework of three months. I don't share that story with you to pull on your heartstrings or to try to get you emotionally charged. I say that because we experience deep sufferings in this life even as God's people. And when you hear a story like that or as a pastor and you walk alongside of a family like that, there, there, there was no manner of pastoral ministry classes that I took that prepared me for a moment like that. That is not the time for theological platitudes. That is a time for a deep, robust understanding of the sovereignty of God. Because humanly speaking, there's no way past that. How do you get past something like that? You get past something like that by the grace of God. And I'm happy to say that that family, although they struggled, although they were sad, although they mourned, although they went through counseling for a long time, their faith still stands by the grace of God. And I like to think in part because they had a robust theology, a biblical theology and understanding of the sovereignty of God over suffering. And I want to set that theological and biblical foundation for us today. And so what I want to do is I want to give us five statements. So if you're taking notes, you could write this down. I want to give us five statements about suffering and God's sovereignty that I believe are necessary pillars to a solid understanding of suffering according to the Bible. Now, my normal way of coming to the Bible is to take a text and just work it through. Uh, But for this conference, I'm going to take a little liberty there. And so I hope you have your Bibles because we're going to go to a number of different places. This is more of a topical understanding from start to finish as we work through these texts together. But I hope you'll see that what we're going to say here this evening is biblical and it will be helpful to your souls. So five statements about, this, about suffering and God's sovereignty over suffering that will help us be rooted and grounded in God when suffering comes our way. Statement number one, suffering is a God-ordained consequence of living in a fallen world. I'll say it again, that suffering is a God-ordained consequence of living in a fallen world. I know that's not a profound statement, but it's a necessary statement for us to understand because if we don't understand it, human suffering will seem strange to us. Even those of us who have a theocentric approach to the Bible and to life, if you don't understand this basic truth that suffering has come into the world as a consequence of God's ordination that if we disobeyed him, there would be these consequences. If you're confused here, you'll find yourself bumping up against philosophical conundrums trying to explain the goodness and the power of God over against suffering in this world. A theodicy is what we call it, trying to marry those things together. But if you come to understand what the Bible says, that God in his sovereign grace created a world without suffering and we messed it up in Adam and as a result of that, pain and suffering and destruction and death came and invaded this world, then you'll be off to a good start. And I want to take us to several texts to show this. So if your Bibles are open with me, join me in Genesis chapter 1. This is review for many of you, but hopefully this will be helpful. We know that Genesis chapter 1, we have the account of God's creation. In six days, God created ex nihilo, everything out of nothing for his own glory. 
The highlight of his creation was day six when he sat there. If your Bibles are opened in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on all the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them. God gave a benediction over them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God did that. And everything, verse 31 says, that God had made, he saw, and it was very good. There was no suffering, there was no pain, there was no decay, there was no destruction. It was all good. And God entrusted that to his crown and creation, namely Adam and Eve, to be representatives, co-regents of God, to rule over the earth under his lordship. But then we move into chapter 2, and you know this, that chapter 2 is the specifics of how God created on day 6. And in chapter 2, as we move there, we find these words as God enters into this covenant with Adam and Adam being our, our covenant head. He says this in Genesis 2, verse 15, then the Lord God took the man, that's Adam, and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in, mark this, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And here for the first time in the biblical record, we have the potential of suffering. It is not actual at this point. It is only potential. God has created mankind and God is testing mankind that if he were to obey him, it would be joyful felicity in serving God in his presence forever and ever. But if he did not, in his disobedience, there would be profound consequences. And he says there it would be death and everything else that comes along with death, namely suffering. And Adam is tested and Adam is called to trust God to trust him and obey him and live in the joyful blessings that God had created for him and his posterity. But we move down into Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, you all know the story that Adam rebelled against God. It's cosmic treason. God, Adam turns his, his anger onto God. He tells God that he does not want to have him rule over him by taking of the tree that he was commanded not to eat of. And then as a consequence of that, we find these words here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. Let your eyes glance there. The Lord comes and the Lord speaks to the husband and he speaks to the wife and he says this in verse 14 and through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat the, all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then Adam's, he, to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, and you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Suffering then becomes actual. Suffering then becomes experiential. And it, and it isn't, brothers and sisters, and I want you to get this, it, it isn't because God had just chosen to cause the suffering. It is because Adam rebelled. God poured out his wrath on mankind because mankind first turned his wrath on God. Adam sinned and brought judgment and brought a curse into the world. And from Genesis chapter 4 all the way to Revelation chapter 20, there is suffering on every page of the biblical record. 
And we all experience it because all of us in Adam sinned and all of us in Adam are deserving of the suffering that is caused by our sin. Your Bibles are still open and turn to Romans chapter 5 for a brief moment. Where Paul writes these familiar words to us, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We all sinned in Adam as our federal head. And as a result of that, then the curse that came upon Adam and all of his posterity and even creation itself, we all are subject to it. None of us are immune to it. Not even as believers. This world is broken. This world is fallen. And we live in it. And we are subject to all of his fallenness. And we dare not, brothers and sisters, we dare not shake our defiant fists at God when suffering comes our way. God is not to blame. We are. And don't mistake that statement. I'm not saying that there's a one-to-one correlation between your sin and your suffering. But it is to say, in solidarity with Adam, we all sinned, and therefore we all suffer. The blame is squarely ours. Thomas Watson said this, All the troubles incident to man's life are but the bitter fruits of original sin. We broke God's law. God promised that there would be consequences. There would be blessing for obedience. There would be curse and suffering for disobedience. That's why the world is the way that the world is, because of our sin. But thanks be to God that even though sin and suffering entered into the world because of our disobedience, that God did not yield or relinquish his sovereignty over it. And that leads us to our second statement. That suffering is never outside of God's ultimate control. Yes, suffering is a part of living in the fallen world. It is the consequence of our sins. We should never think that it's something strange that God is doing. It is a result of our disobedience, but God is still yet sovereign over it all. It would be a grave error to draw the conclusion that God lacks sovereignty over our sins because, or over our suffering because sin brought it into the world. The scriptures squarely place all things under the ultimate sovereign control of God, and that includes our suffering. A text that has gripped my heart for many years is found in the book of Romans. If you're still there, turn briefly to Romans chapter 11. I, I, I call this text, and I'm sure it doesn't originate with me, I call this text Romans chapter 11 verse 36 the triangle of divine sovereignty. Paul has just been trafficking in the deepest end of the pool of the sovereignty of God over redemption, how God can have mercy upon whom he can have mercy, he can have compassion upon whom he can have compassion, that, that he can judge the Jews in their disobedience to make room for Gentiles to be grafted in, that God is sovereign over all of that. And Paul comes to the place where he just ends his own understanding. And in verse 33, if your Bible's open there, follow with me as Paul writes, Oh, the depth of both the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For, listen to this, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Did you see the triangle? Uh, You got to use your sanctified imagination. For from him... For from him and through him and to him are all things. When Paul says all things, he means all things. He means that there is nothing that is outside of the sovereign control of God. He doesn't say, he isn't intimating that God is, is, is the cause of the original source of sin and or suffering. He means that sin and or suffering is still under his control that he has not relinquished anything to even Satan himself, who is the God little g of this world, who usurped his authority working through Eve to get to Adam, who was to reign on the earth for God's sake. 
God's sovereignty, brothers and sisters, is over all things. We must understand that. We must allow that reality to grip our hearts and grip our minds when we face hardships, when we face pain, when we face loss, when we're persecuted for our faith, when when we're isolated, when we're lonely, that God is sovereign over it. That it's not something that just simply happened to you without God's knowledge, without God's forethought, without God's predestination, without, without God's intention, without meaning or purpose. God is sovereign over it all. I want to take you through a few categories under this heading of, of thinking through the, God's divine sovereignty over our suffering. This is not an exhaustive list, but hopefully it gives you an idea of just the comprehensiveness of God's sovereignty as he has revealed it in the word of God. God is sovereign. First of all, you take a note, you're to write it this way. God is sovereign over satanic suffering. That we recognize that, that Satan is alive and Satan is real. And Satan causes pain and causes suffering in the lives of even God's people. But God is sovereign over it all. Turn with me in your Bibles to Job. We are familiar with Brother Job. Job has so much to teach us about trusting God in the midst of pain. In Job chapter 1, we find the words here in verse 8. That the Lord said to Satan who was there before the Lord as the sons of God were in his presence. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. You all know this, right? Whose idea is it for Satan to consider Job? It's God's idea. Satan had just said he had been going up and down the earth seeking someone he may devour. And God himself says, have you considered my servant Job? And what's about to transpire that God gives Satan permission to do is not as a result of anything wrong that Job had done. Because the text starts off by telling us that Job is a righteous man. He's blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. He is a righteous, God-fearing, Yahweh-following man. And yet God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Look at verse 12, still in chapter 1. And then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from his presence, from the presence of the Lord. And you know what happens in chapter 2. That God, through sovereign ordination, allowed, permitted, Satan, to bring about into Job's life unimaginable suffering. He lost his finances to update it. He lost his livelihood. He lost his family. He lost his health. And yet Job understood it all ultimately came from the hand of God. Notice in chapter 2 how Job responds Look at verse 9. Then his wife said to him, having everything been taken away from him, he's now afflicted with sore boils and the sole of his foot from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. He could do nothing to relieve his pain except take a pot shirt and, and scrape himself. And then his wife comes to him and says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Do you understand where she is? And I know we're all sanctified, so nobody's going to say, yeah, I understand where she is. But on the dark night of the soul, when the dark, afflictive providences of God come your way, maybe you can't, but I can understand where she is. She's saying, you, 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 you hold out your integrity to worship this God, and, and all of this has happened to you. And he responds, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. 
Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? You guys see it? He gives Satan no credit. No credit. He understands that, 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 that the, the pain that he's experiencing from the, the, the removal of his own help to the killing of his own kids to the, to the storms that took away his servants and all of his property, he understands it all to lay square at the feet of sovereign God. And he does not accuse God of any sin in all of it. It is not wrong for Job to say God did this. That God can bring good into my life and God can bring raw into my life. This idea of, of ill into my life. He saw all of it under the sovereign control of God. God is in control of satanic suffering. God is in control, secondly, of natural suffering. What do I mean by natural suffering? I just mean natural disasters. God was in control of the storm that just rolled through here. Of, of, of thundering and lightning and, and, and hell storms and, and floods and, and famines and, and disease and locusts. All of it. God is sovereign all of it. Let's read the first part of the book of Exodus and the, and the plagues that go through Egypt. Was God not trying to prove a point? Did he not prove his point? That I am sovereign over it all. When's the last time that you read the book of Jonah? Right? Jonah is just not so much about the, the big fish that swallowed Jonah. It's about the sovereignty of Almighty God. From the first chapter to the fourth chapter, it's all about God. God is in control of the wind. God is in control of the storm. God is in control of the sea. He's in control of the, of the sea monster. He's in control of the plant. He's in control of the worm. He's in control of it all. Jesus steps on the scene, does he not? And he's asleep in the boat and he stands up, does he not? And he speaks to the wind and he speaks to the sea. And he says, peace, be still. And it says that the disciples became afraid. Have you ever thought about that? Why were they afraid? Because they knew the Old Testament. Or I should put it this way. They knew their Bibles. They knew that the only one who could control the sea and the wave is Yahweh. And here's this man in the boat with us at this particular place on the Sea of Galilee. And he says, peace, shalom, be still. And the winds and the waves obey him. God is sovereign over it all. And so when the storm comes and the, the, the floods wash away your home or in my neck of the woods when the fires are on the backside of the hills and and houses are burned up if you've been watching the news at all and seeing the devastation that is happening in Maui as we speak God is sovereign over it all sickness and disease it's the last time you read John chapter 9 as, as Jesus corrects the, the theology of his own disciples. Have you guys ever noticed that? As they passed by John chapter 9, as they passed by, he saw a man uh, born blind. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? That, that was their theology, right? That there was a one-to-one -one correlation between sin and suffering. And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That here, Jesus is planning even disability squarely under the sovereign control of Almighty God. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that? Satanic suffering, God has control over. Natural suffering, God is in control over. Providential suffering. Now, what do I mean by that? I, I mean by that just simply what we generally put under the category of accidents. Accidents. Chance happenings. But here in Proverbs 16, verse 33, you all know it well that the, lap, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. That's how extensive his sovereignty is. Something that we would normally just say, well, that was an accident. The rolling of the dice. And this is just an example because I know none of you guys have done this. The rolling of the dice and you lose all of your money. It's from the Lord. 
He's sovereign over it all. The accident when the drunk driver careens off of the sidewalk or off of the curb onto the sidewalk and takes out a mother and her child. What the Bible would say is, is that God is sovereign even over that. Judicial suffering. What do I mean by that? Judicial suffering. Genesis chapter 6, that, that God breaks in in his fury and his anger and he judges. We don't know when those times are. We don't want to be proscostic. Um, we don't want to be individuals that, that always go around saying, well, this happened because, because God judged and this happened because God judged. We don't know that God doesn't reveal that to us. But there are times, the Bible clearly tells us that there are times when God breaks in in judgment in this world. Disciplinary suffering. What do I mean by that? Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. In the book of Hebrews, God disciplines his children. And he's sovereign over it. Verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 12. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. And it is not always pleasant. In verse 10 For they, that is our earthly fathers, discipline us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, that is our heavenly father, disciplines us for our good so that we might share in his holiness. All discipline, verse 11 says, for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. God does that and he's sovereign in it. He does it because he loves us. We heard our dear brother Paul, he mentioned Philippians chapter 1 about what I would call just faith suffering, Christian suffering, for it has not only been granted to us to believe for the Lord's sake, but also to suffer for the Lord's sake. God is sovereign over it all. Jeremiah said this in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 and 38, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Job said it this way. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. My wife and I have the privilege of parenting five wonderful children and now two grandchildren. Our our youngest daughter has special needs, and she's now 17 years old. But when she was born, she was, she was so small. She was so tiny. It took two and a half years for us to actually get a diagnosis. Her diagnosis is so rare that, that only about six people that they know of have her condition in the whole world. And I remember sitting in the geneticist's office with my wife, and we were waiting to get the reports back, and the doctor came in with a... She would literally just say that she didn't have the best bedside manner. And she gave to us this horrible news that in her estimation that our daughter would never live past the age of six. And if she did, she would never be able to speak. She would never be able to run. She would never be able to play. She would never be able to think. I mean, just the horrible, horrible news. This is before we knew anything about her condition. And at that moment, what do I do? What do we do? Who do we blame? Where do I turn my angst toward? If I believe the word of God, I go to the word of God. As hard and painful as it was for us to prepare for a life of parenting a child with special needs, some of you know what that's like. I had to say that that God is sovereign over it. That who makes man's mouth? Is it not God? That God put my daughter in a special package for us. And he's sovereign over it all. Some of you all are living with a special package right now. Whatever it may be, you know what it is right now. 
the pain of a hard marriage, the pain of a wayward child, the loss of financial comfort, the loss of your own health, difficulty in, in ministry, unmet expectations, prayers that have not been answered. You've been praying and praying, Lord, bring me a spouse, and he has not answered that prayer. Maybe you've been isolated and ostracized in your own family. Where do you go with it all? God says, bring it to me and bring it underneath me. Because I'm sovereign over it all. The question for us this weekend, brothers and sisters, are are we going to believe this? Are these going to be just theological platitudes? Are this going to be really rooted and grounded in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls? So when these things come to us, we won't rebel against God. We won't kick against God. But we will welcome into our souls, as painful as it might be, the sufferings that he has ordained for us, for our good and for his glory. Suffering isn't random. Nor is it the guide, the guide guided by some dualistic force competing with God. God's mighty sovereign hand is over it all. Number three, suffering is not only permitted by God, but it is also intended by God. Let me say it again. Suffering is not only permitted by God, but it is also intended by God. Sometimes Christians use that language like when really hard things happen, really painful things happen. We use the language that God permitted it to happen. And I'm not saying that necessarily that's wrong, but I think sometimes we're much more comfortable with the permission language because it, it helps us balance bad things happening to us and still trying to maintain the sovereignty of God. And it is true, God permits as he gave permission to Satan to go after Job. He permitted Satan to sift Peter like wheat. But I want to push us a little bit further and see that it's not just permission. And if what you mean by permission, that is to say that God allowed something to happen that he could not necessarily stop, and then he reacts. I want us to understand what the Bible says is that God is not a reactor. He is an initiator. That he ordains and preordains that which he permits to happen. Take you to Genesis once again. Some of you know where we're going in Genesis chapter 50. In the life of our dear brother Joseph, whose life was filled with suffering. But, but he learned the lessons that we're discussing this evening. Genesis chapter 50, after Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, he, he, he he says this, and brothers and sisters, I'm not here to tell you what to do, but if, if, if you don't have this highlighted in your Bible, you're crazy. I would highlight it. I would underscore it. I'd come back to it over and over again and again. Joseph says this in Genesis 50, verse 19, verse 20. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, write this down, note this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Brothers and sisters, do you see it? The the same word there for meant is used both for the brothers of Joseph and for God. They have to have the same meaning in the sentence. So in the same way Joseph's brothers meant it, and if you go back and read the story at the beginning of the story, they meant it, they planned it, they they, they ordained it, they gave their energies toward it. There was a purpose in them selling him into slavery. And the Bible says Joseph understood that it's not just God permitted it to happen or God reacted to it to happen. The Bible says God meant it. That means that God planned it. God ordained it. 
And I'll leave it to my, my smarter brethren who will be preaching to you later on to explain how that can happen. Secondary causes and, 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 and the way that God works through contingencies and, and concurrence. But God meant in his sovereignty, he intended, he planned, he designed this to happen to Joseph. And I don't think that this is just an isolated incident. I think every single ounce of suffering and pain that comes into our lives, God intends it. He personally designs it. And even when it comes to us through the, the evil machinations of those who hate God, he, he is not responsible for their evil or their hatred, but yet somehow or another he is still sovereign over it and has designed it for his glory and for your good. And we can receive it as such. That, that's how Joseph cannot be bitter. That's how Joseph cannot be angry. That's how Joseph could say that the Lord did all of these things. Turn back a few chapters into chapter 45. Joseph understood that God did this. Genesis 45, 5. Now, do not be grieved, he says to his brother, or angry with yourselves. Because you sold me here. Listen, just see this, you guys. See the sovereignty of God over the suffering of man. Because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Verse 8, now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. You see it? Joseph is dripping with a robust, vibrant, thoroughly biblical understanding of the sovereignty of God over his suffering. Oh, dear saints, this is so very important to us. That God has designed in what you're going through right now. Whatever it is. It did not catch God off guard. God tailored and made it for you. I so resonated with our dear brother earlier. I had some dear mentors in my life. And before I accepted my calling into ministry. And one dear brother came to me when we were making decisions, my wife and I, to, to leave my job and to go into seminary and get trained for a life of vocational ministry. And a dear brother came to me and says, you know you're signing up for suffering, don't you? And I said, no. <laughs> I did not know that. And he said it. He said exactly what you said, brother. That God will not use you until he breaks you and keeps you broken. And I don't, I don't think that's just necessarily for preachers and pastors and missionaries. I think that's for all of God's people. That God has chosen in his infinite wisdom and his infinite knowledge that, that, that he desires to keep us weak. He desires to keep us humble. He desires to keep us low. He de desires to, to keep us dependent upon him that he might fill us up with himself. So that we might trust him in faith. And when we trust him in faith, he uses us. And then when he uses us, who gets the glory? Certainly not us. Not unto us, O Lord. Not unto us, but to thy name be the glory. And suffering is a means to that end. Brothers and sisters, you have to see your pain that way. You have to change the way you view your pain. You have to bring the Bible up to your eyes and see it through that prism of God's sovereign care and love and design for your life. God is sovereign over it all. Two more to go and then we'll be done. Number four, and we've already hinted at it, suffering. Number four, suffering is a part of God's sovereign plan for his glory and for our good. Even after everything that I've said, if I were to ask the question, it would be a silly question to ask, but if I were to ask it anyways, and I were to ask you, say, hey, I'm going I'm to put a line over here and a line over there. The line over here is going to be a life of ease and comfort and no pain. 
And the line over here is going to be a line of suffering and pain and hardship. And then I said, everybody get up and go in the line. I suspect that this line would be longer than that line. Maybe. But if we know that in this line, God is designing things in our lives to magnify his glory, to exalt the name of his son, and to bring us the glory, then I think there would be a shift in the way that we would line up. The pain of chemotherapy is welcomed and embraced if we know that it will cure the cancer. Amen? It is pain, but it will be welcomed if we know that it's doing something in our life, that it's curing something in our life, if it's burning off old dross and making us into something that we could otherwise not become had it not been for the pain. And that's exactly what God does through our suffering. Turn in your Bibles to a familiar text that we read and that we know that we memorize in Romans chapter 8. What a glorious text. It's in the context of suffering. And Paul says this in Romans 8, 28. And we know, brothers and sisters, we have to know. We have to know. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The problem sometimes with this text or the way that we approach this text is we stop reading at verse 28. Because the good is told us in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's the aim. That's the good that God is always working in our lives through our suffering. It's to be conformed in the image of Christ in thought, word, and deed so that Christ might be the prototokos, the firstborn, the preeminent one of all brethren. And that to the praise and glory of God. That's what life is all about, brothers and sisters and friends. To be like Jesus. And the means that God uses to make us like Jesus is to use his word and his spirit. Work it very often through our suffering. That we would resemble our Savior and our Master and our Lord and our King. As our brother said, if Christ had to suffer... How much more than we who would walk in his footsteps also have to suffer? So you have to start looking at God and work your way down. Don't start with your pain and work your way up. You'll be confused. Start with the character of God, the sovereignty of God the goodness of God, and then work your way down to your pain. Know that he's sovereign over it. Know that he has intentions in it. Know that there's purpose and design for it. And that he's doing something in you through it. You can't always see it. You can't always feel it. That's why we have to stand on the promises of God. To know that our God is Sovereign over it all. I sat and I share these stories with you, not to make myself an example, but just to let you know I have my share of sufferings. My wife and I sat in another doctor's office 12 years ago now, honey. And we sat there having had a biopsy on myself. And if any of you are doctors, don't ever do this. Don't ever leave the big folder with your patient's results on your desk while you're not there and tell your patients to go sit there. Because the folder was really thick and I knew it had to be bad news. And so the doctor comes in and says, it is bad news. He says that I'm the youngest patient that he's ever seen to have the kind of cancer that I actually had. And 
And so at that moment, as I grab my wife's hand and she grabs my hand, what do we do? How do we think? I'm 44 years old at the time. I still have five kids in the house at the time. I have a ministry at the time. My mind goes all over the place. And then I have to, by God's grace, bring myself back to what I know to be true about my God. And it hasn't always been easy. There are times in which I falter. There are times when I do say, why me? But then I'm reminded that God is sovereign and he is working in my life. And before the foundation of the world, he purposed that I would need to have cancer in order for him to bring me ultimately to glory to be like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Suffering. There's a God-ordained consequences of living in a fallen world. Suffering is never outside of God's ultimate control. Suffering is not only permitted by God, but it is also intended by God. Suffering is part of God's sovereign plan for his glory and our good. And fifthly, and with this, we close our time together. Suffering suffered death in the sovereign suffering and death of Jesus. Let's say it again. Suffering suffered death in the sovereign suffering and death of Jesus. I, I, I know it doesn't look like it now. But suffering did suffer death as God sovereignly brought his son through suffering and it pleased the heavenly father to crush his son. That suffering that we experience now will not always last. Hallelujah. That it is only temporal. The Bible teaches that, that Christ Jesus conquered Satan and sin and death and took away God's curse on the cross. That his suffering and his death was vicarious so that our suffering would not only be transformative in our sanctification, but one day it will be completely removed in our glorification. And all of that as a result of what Christ did for us. Listen, brothers and sisters, Christ entered into our suffering. Christ conquered our suffering. And Christ will return to remove us from suffering. And let the church say, amen. Amen. Let me give us a couple of texts and we'll close our time. You've been very patient. Christ came and entered into our suffering. As I vicarious sin-bearing substitute, Isaiah 53. We know it well. Our brother took us here. I'll pick up the reading in verse 3. He... Jesus, the suffering servant, was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and he did not esteem him. Surely listen to this. Listen to him being our representative. See him being our federal head. See him being our substitute. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yes, we ourselves, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, all of us. Like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Drop down to verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many as he will bear their iniquities. 
We know this, do we not, brothers and sisters? That on that cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Or he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He took it on. He entered into it for us. And he conquered it. He conquered it on the cross. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preaches this wonderful sermon. Verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested by you or to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death but God raised him up again listen to this putting an end to the agony of death and that's not just putting an end to the agony of death for Jesus That's putting an end to the agony of death for all of God's people. For all those for whom he died on the cross, he put an end to our death. That death no longer has power over our lives. It has lost its sting. It has no victory because of what Christ did for his people on the cross. Hallelujah. What a Savior. He entered into our suffering. He conquered our suffering. And lastly, he will come back and remove us from our suffering. Revelation chapter 21. And with this, we close. The day is coming, brothers and sisters. John writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. This is Revelation 21.1. And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, make ready as a bride, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. And listen to verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain the first things will have passed away whatever you're going through right now could I just encourage you to hold on hold on not hold on to your faith hold on to the God of your faith Trust that he has sovereign, glorious, good purposes, even in your pain, even in your affliction, that he is doing a mighty work in you and he's conforming you into the likeness of his son. Hold on to him and know that weeping may last for a nighttime. But brothers and sisters, a morning is coming when there will be nothing but eternal joy. And let the church say, amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are deeply grateful for your mercy and for your grace. And for this word, Lord, your word, that we trust has brought us to see you as the sovereign God, a good and wise powerful and loving Father who is sovereign over every detail of our lives. Help us, dear God, to bow the knee to your plan for our lives. God, I I pray that we would lift our gaze even off of our circumstances and place them upon you and place them upon your son, Jesus, who is reigning at your right hand, moving, working, purging, building, making us into his own image and likeness. I pray particularly for those in this room under the sound of my voice who are suffering. God, I pray that you would draw near to them in your comforting and sanctifying grace. Remind them of your great love for them and the sufficiency of your word and your spirit so that they will not falter in faith, but trust you and even grow 
to know who you are in their lives. Lord, we thank you for our evening. We love you. God, we pray that you would dismiss us from this place with traveling mercies as we get on these roads. Lord God, take us in your providence back to our residences. Lord God, give us a good night's rest. We would pray, our Father, wake us in the morning with our hearts still stirred from your word and desirous to hear more from you. So we commend and commit ourselves to you afresh. We bless you and we praise you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.